From Genesis 17, Lord, would you speak to our hearts and make us receptive, willing, open, uh, honest hearers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, kids, this is your moment. Pastor Robert is in the back. You can follow him out. (laughs) Run as fast as you can. Steamroll him. All right, we are in Genesis chapter 17 this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn there. We're continuing through the life of Abraham. It's a life and a narrative that just constantly, repeatedly, over and over and over and over, points forward to salvation, points forward to a Messiah. Before we get into our text, I have a very uh, intellectual and deep spiritual question for you. How many of you are game show watchers? Would anyone be willing to raise their hand and say, I am an avid game show watcher? Okay, so there's a few guilty persons in here, more than in first hour, so that's good. You'll resonate. Our family was on a game show a number of years ago, and I thought it would be the greatest thing ever, because I want to win something. There's got to be a purpose. The purpose, it doesn't matter if we have fun, it doesn't matter if we don't have fun, it doesn't matter if we do well or we don't do well, we need to come away with something. We need to win. And winning is less important than coming away with something. The emphasis for me is coming away with something. My wife wanted to have a good time. I wanted to come away with something. The game show was not all that it was cracked up to be. Uh, we didn't come away with something. Uh, there was a constant sense of pressure. The clock is always ticking, and they're wanting a response, a thoughtful response, an intelligent response, quickly. And it never seemed like we were fast enough with the answers. There's a constant sense uh, of pressure that I'm going to mess this up for the entire team, that everyone else knows the answer but me when the mic is in your face. The game show did not live up to its expectations to me. It was a letdown. And so as we move into Genesis chapter 17, I would suggest that maybe for some of us, there are parts of life that have not met your expectations, that maybe even you'd classify as a letdown. And what's going to happen in our text today is God is just going to roll the curtain back and show Abraham with incredible clarity, with incredible details and even timelines, what he's doing. And to stick with the game show imagery It's kind of like the scene, if you've ever watched The Price is Right, it's a game show where contestants guess the price of things, whoever gets the closest goes on for another competition. At the end of the show, the top two contestants face each other in what's called the showcase showdown, and there's this scene that happens in every single episode. The top two contestants are there, and they pull the curtain back to reveal the prize that they're going to be battling over. And the prize is always extravagant. It's always over the top. Sometimes it includes a new car and a bunch of other really neat things. And so the scene that's the same every time is this this pandemonium, this exhilaration, this excitement of I can't believe what's behind that curtain. I might be able to win what's behind that curtain. I might go home with that. It always exceeds their expectation. And so as we we come into our text from Genesis 17, I think what we're going to see is that What God has for Abram far exceeds what Abraham could have ever hoped, dreamed, or imagined. And so I hope that as we pause and consider these areas of our life where there's this sense of letdown, 
hasn't met my expectations. In fact, it's been far worse than that. Hope dashed is maybe a better way to describe it. That we would be reminded that God is active, involved, hearing, near, attentive, watchful, and that when he rolls back the curtain, when he shows us what we're doing, what happens is we come to this incredible conviction that what he's doing is far greater than anything we ever hoped, dreamed, or imagined. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 17. The very first point this morning is simply that God's greater plan for us is actually greater for us. His greater is greater. It's greater for me. It's greater for us. It's greater for my family. Me being holy is better than me being happy. What he has for me is better than what I even want for myself. Genesis chapter 17, the first eight verses, starting in verse one, says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God almighty. Uh, That's El Shaddai, the name of God that References his power, his omnipotence. He says, walk before me and be blameless that I may make a covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Because an I will be their God. God comes to Abram and says, I got way more planned than what you realized. Not just father of a great people, uh, which Abram means, not just father of a, of a large group, but a multitude of people, a multitude of nations, and changes the name to Abraham. Not just that, but he says, Abram, my covenant's not going to die with you. My covenant's not going to run through you and through your son and then end. This is an eternal covenant through you, through your son, through your son's son, through their descendants afterward and their descendants after. This is an eternal covenant. So the, the magnitude in the sense of multitude is much greater than Abraham imagined. The length of covenant is much greater than Abraham had imagined. And then God gives him some details. He says, not just any land, not just a promised land, not this really nice land that I'll show you one day. It's this land, this land of Canaan that you have seen, that you have wandered through in your sojournings. It is this land. And so just a couple of things as we... We give thought to God's greater being greater for us. God's good plan being better than our good plans for ourselves. Uh, First, we see that God adds details to this covenantal lineage. God adds details to this covenantal lineage. Here's what he says in verse 6. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will multiply you greatly. Do those words sound familiar? multiply you greatly. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Turn back to Genesis 1, 28. If you have your Bibles with you, I want us to see that there's some insider language here that is rather significant in understanding the magnitude of what God is promising to Abraham. This is what God says to Adam and Eve at the very beginning. His plan for them, his good for them, his best. And God blessed them and God said to them in verse 28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. The creation mandate, this is yours. Oversee it, rule it, enjoy it, multiply, fill it. 
that doesn't go so well. Adam and Eve don't live up to their end of the bargain. God resets the table with Noah in Genesis chapter 9. When Noah comes off the boat, God says this in Genesis 9.1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, here it is again, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So we're seeing a pattern of similar language, a pattern of repeated language. And so I would say as we, as we bring that into this text of Genesis 17, uh, we see the magnitude of what God's intending to do in the sense that we see him saying to Abram, all that I have hoped for for mankind, all that I have intended for, for you all, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to do it through you. I'm going to do it for your offspring. I'm going to do it through your offspring. Abraham, what you couldn't do, what Adam and Eve couldn't do, what Noah couldn't do, what no one can do, I'm going to do for you. And so you can't help but just pause and and step back from that and say, wow, doesn't that really sound like Jesus? Doesn't that really sound like the gospel? Doesn't that really sound like salvation? Something being done for us that we could never do for ourselves. Here God comes and just expands Abram's understanding of what it is that he's intending to do. The second thing that he says is, Abram, the blessing won't end with you. Verse 7 says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Consider God's faithfulness to the people of Israel. Is there a more hated country uh, from a global standpoint than the people of Israel? Is there a more oppressed people from a global standpoint than the people of Israel? To the best of our knowledge, they have not rigged any of our elections. They have not stolen any of our ideas and sell knockoffs around the world. They're not stealing anyone's oil. To the best that we can tell, there's not any over-the-top offenses, right, that are uh, part of the global narrative. But what do we see? Over and over and over and over, they're oppressed and attacked, and the persons or the oppressors or the attackers wilt and crumble in the face of this tiny little speck of a nation. Mark Twain said this about the Jews. He said, all things are mortal, but the Jews. All other forces pass, but he remains What is the secret of his immortality? Winston Churchill said, Some people like the Jews, some do not. But no thoughtful man can deny the fact that they are, beyond any question, the most formidable and the most remarkable race which has appeared in the world. And and so it's interesting because the more that they're oppressed or the more that they're attacked, the more that what's theirs is threatened, seemingly God's protective provisions and power and oversight are more clearly seen in the world where you have even outsiders looking at Israel and saying, I don't get it. This clearly must be the most formidable race in the history of the world. And we might say it's not the most formidable race in the history of the world. It's protected by a God who's the most formidable God imaginable. The one true God looks over these people. And so we see in their provisions and protections the power and the goodness and the faithfulness of God. God says to Abraham, this is going to be an eternal covenant. 
Last, he gets real specific and he says, this land. So in the past, God has talked about promised land. In Genesis 12, he says, a land that I will show you. And now God says, this is the land of Canaan. This place that you've been, these places that you've been wandering and seeing, this is the land I was talking about. And so one of the neat things that we see from Genesis to Revelation is a move from God from things that are more ambiguous and undefined. And and as we move from Genesis towards Revelation, uh, things become clearer and things more defined. Uh, For example, we talked a few chapters ago about Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a priest king that shows up for just a few verses in a previous chapter. And the Bible says we don't know where he came from. We don't know where he went to. We just know he was a priest king. And there's something really significant about that. And we understood that a thought, a foundation uh, of preparing us for a Messiah, for Jesus, who would be priest king, uh, that a foundation is laid with Melchizedek, something that would be referred back to to explain who Jesus is, something that would be referred back to to show the continuous work of the Lord throughout redemptive history as one continuous plan. Uh, but it moves from ambiguity to clarity. And we see some of that clarity take shape in, in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 uh, say this in reference to the Messiah, uh, infinitely clearer than the little snapshot we saw from Melchizedek. Verse 6 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. talks about being on the city of David and that the Lord will bring these things about. And then, of course, as we fast forward, we get Jesus. After 400 years of silence, we get Jesus. And so we see that the Lord moving moves from ambiguity to more clarity uh, with Jesus as a narrative from cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation. And here he brings clarity to Abram and his plans as he pulls back the curtain and says, look at what I have in store for you. And, and so some of you have been praying very, very specifically uh, for people, for situations, uh, for jobs, uh, for health. And I love this text. I love that God gives Abraham the clarity that he longs for because I want clarity from the Lord. I think we want clarity from the Lord. We don't always get it. And when we don't get it, there's this sense that he is distant or that he's preoccupied. Kind of like a parent watching their kids at a, at a jungle gym who's preoccupied with the phone until they see the kid hanging by one hand on the monkey bars getting ready to fall, and then they run and jump and, and you know, grab the kid to keep him from falling. Sometimes we think that God is preoccupied or distant or busy or not attentive to us. And so we see that God comes and pulls back the curtain and gives Abram incredible clarity about what it is that he's going to do. And so a question I might ask just from this initial cluster of verses is do you believe that God can and wants to do more than you could ever think, hope, dream, or imagine in your life. Because the way God works virtually never looks like what we think it should. Uh, And so this groundedness of trusting his character, seeing his pattern of faithfulness over time, those are the anchoring uh, pieces that hold us firm in the storm and cause us to look forward optimistically, trusting, hopeful, uh, because of who he is, not necessarily because of what we see. Let's pick it up with Genesis 
verses 9 through 14 of chapter 17, not only is God's plan for Abram so much better than what he imagined, it's also permanent. This is an eternal covenant, uh, and we're going to see that through the sign of circumcision. Verses 9 through 14, continuing in chapter 17. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep. Between me and you and your offspring after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. He has broken my covenant. God says, Abraham, here's what I'm going to do. Here's the sign. Put yourself in Abraham's shoes at this moment. You're thinking, this is so good. This, this is so incredible what you're going to do. And then God says, and Abram, here is the sign. Can you hear Abraham go, come again? You know, how about shave my head? I'll do that real quickly. How about wear a special hat or, or get an ear pierced? That would be cool. It's kind of a peculiar sign, isn't it? Um, first of all, it's not something that is visible to passerbyers. So this is a sign that's going to mark these people as covenantal beneficiaries of God's promise to Abraham. And it's not even something anyone can see. Not only that, it seems to be unnecessarily painful. There doesn't seem to be a purpose for that pain. It's interesting that it's just for the men. There's seemingly no parallel for the women. Interestingly enough, it's not something new. It's not like God comes up with this new handshake that no one's ever seen before and they do the secret handshake. Other nations, other regions of the world practiced circumcision at the time. And so as we just kind of sift through whatever questions uh, may come up, there's, there's speculation about what these different things mean. And some of the things uh, that I, that I kind of find interesting about it are uh, circumcision is permanent, right? Once it's done, it can't be undone. God's covenant to Abraham and to these people is permanent. What's been done cannot be undone. Interestingly enough, when we become followers of Christ, our position as children, our position as heirs, as sons and daughters, as Romans 8 says, is permanent, right? And cannot be undone. The fact that it's not visible to passerbyers is interesting also. Maybe some parallels with faith, right? Because there is an invisible to outsiders change that happens to become part of this covenantal community via Abraham. Today, as we think about faith, there is an internal change that needs to happen before we become new covenantal members united uh, with Jesus, co-heirs with Jesus. It's permanent. It's an invisible change that leads to outward fruit. There 
is precedence uh, in the Old Testament and other places for specific religious rituals which the men participated in and that the women did not. So there's not a reason to see some sort of slight here. There's not a reason to see some sort of priority uh, of gender. It seems consistent with other rituals uh, and signs uh, of the time. Interestingly enough, circumcision was never meant to be just physical. You remember what Stephen said in Acts chapter 7 when he's interacting with the religious leaders and he's about to get stoned and he's basically accusing them of being godless even though they're the religious instructors of the day, not something they're going to take kindly to. And do you remember what he, what he calls them in Acts chapter 7? I think it's verse 51. He says, you stiff-necked people, and here it is, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. So the idea of a physical circumcision being the sign of a covenantal person uh, through the line of Abraham is significant, but then it's a building block for faith in the New Testament that says it's not just something physical that happens. It's a circumcision of the eyes, a circumcision of the heart. If, if circumcision set a person apart for holiness as part of this covenantal community in the Old Testament, then faith sets all of a person apart for holiness. And so it's not just one part of us, it's all of us. And so the idea then that uh, a circumcised heart is equated to faith. It's equated to obedience. And then again, this old covenant becomes a foundation for Jesus to explain what it means to follow him and for his followers to help their contemporaries, help their audience see how much greater it is that Jesus has brought, what a greater arrangement it is that Jesus has made possible for them. Third, from verses 15 through 21, God's greater plan goes into great detail. Sometimes we think that the details don't matter. The devil's in the details. God's plan goes into great detail. And I think that this is a responsive thought, a responsive piece from a loving father. One of our kids, my oldest, loves details. He wants to know everything that we're going to do today, tomorrow, the day after, what we're going to do when we get home from church, what we're going to do after we do that, if we're going to go out to eat, if we're not going to go He wants to know every part of the day. And so a thoughtful response to me is to actually tell him some of the things that we're going to do. A very unloving and pain-inducing response from me is to say, we'll see. <laughs> is to say, I'll tell you when we get there. That makes him squirm. It really irritates him. Uh, I think God coming to Abram and giving details is a very thoughtful and loving response from a thoughtful and loving father. Let's read verses 15 through 21. And God said to Abram, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, which means princess, but Sarah, which also means princess, shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. And I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. 
God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. We're getting names. We're getting timelines. Sarah is more included in the promise than we've seen to date in God's communication to Abraham. Uh, We see specific provisions for Ishmael and a promise for Ishmael's future, but that he is actually not the child of the covenant, that it's going to be Isaac and what is promised to Isaac, and even when Isaac is going to be born. Consider that it's been 13 years since Ishmael's been born. 13 years since Sarah and Abraham took matters into their own hands and produced a child through Hagar in hopes that that would be the child of the promise because it didn't seem like God was doing his part. And so we see 13 years later, 13 years to wander, 13 years to wonder, 13 years to doubt, and God comes and says, this time next year you will have a son, his name will be Isaac, born through Sarah, And he shall be the child of the promise of the covenant. And so we're reminded that God specializes in the impossible. We're reminded that God specializes in what seems impossible to us. What seems to be beyond our imagination, beyond our comprehension. It could never work out. I see no hope that God specializes in the impossible. There's so many great illustrations of this. Gideon is the one that comes to mind uh, for me. If you've read through the book of Judges, you know that in in Judges chapter 6, God comes to Gideon and God says, Oh, Gideon, man of great valor. Is Gideon a man of great valor? No. He will make that clear. Because Gideon starts complaining about all of the unfulfilled promises of God. Gideon immediately says, God, what about this? What about this? Why haven't you worked? Why are we oppressed? Why haven't you protected us? Why haven't you provided for us? God comes to him and says, oh, man of valor, I have this job for you. So wherever you maybe see yourself uh, in the worst light, imagine God coming to you and having some sort of affirming title for that. So for me, that would be God saying, Nathan, you know, voice of an angel. I can't sing. I know I can't sing. If God comes to me and says, oh, Nathan, oh, voice of an angel, something's wrong, or he's about to ask me to do something I really, really don't want to do, and he's buttering me up. Um, Neither of which (laughs) seem to be God. But he comes to Gideon and he says, Oh man of valor, I've got this job for you. You're going to free the people. I'm going to free them through you. Assemble the army. 33,000 people assemble. It's a great army. 33,000 soldiers are assembled. In in Judges 7-2, God looks at Gideon and he says, There are too many soldiers. If I let you win this battle, you will say, Your hands have protected yourself. You will say, your hands have delivered you. So God comes to Gideon and says, Gideon, we got to send some people home. Uh, Gideon was scared at the thought of battle to begin with. God whittles his army down to 300 men, from 33,000 to 300 men. Gideon is terrified at this point. And God gives them the victory. And in Genesis, Judges, chapter 8, Um, the men 
And women see that Gideon has been successful. They see that the Lord has protected them. They see that the Lord has delivered them from the undeliverable, that he has done the impossible. And they put two and two together and say, let's make Gideon king. This has worked out well. And in Judges chapter 8, Gideon says this. He says, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. He says, the Lord will rule over you. Gideon gets it. Gideon gets that the Lord specializes in the impossible. God uses the impossible to show his goodness and power, so we'll find in him life and the fullness of joy. Our impossible situations often force us to wait for something. Waiting grates on just about every fiber of our being, but waiting tends to prevent us from doing. And doing tends to prevent us from hearing. And so if we can be a church that waits and listens, it will be transformative. There's something else that happens in waiting. Um, We see who's really in control. Uh, Ian, our eight-year-old, is taking jujitsu. And so now he's very tough. But he, he thinks that he's very tough. He thinks he's top dog. And so he comes at me regularly. This never used to happen. He gets in my space. I'm a space person. I need just some room as he's kind of laying on top of my face. But he wants to fight. And so when we wrestle, he thinks he's the top dog. Zach does actually too, and and Zach could be. Um, (laughs) uh, That's neither here nor there. But when they're lying in bed and they get scared... They don't spring out of bed and say, all right, where's the bad guy? They come running into my room. Because as the circumstances get more terrifying, as the situation becomes more dire, as the fear becomes more real, we recognize, don't we, who's in control. And we recognize that we're not. And that's okay so long as we have someone to turn to. Right? It's okay so long as we have someone to turn to. We have a God who specializes in the impossible. Fourth, God's greater plan warrants complete obedience. The end of the chapter, uh, to save a few minutes, you can read it on your own, 22 through 26. Abraham, all 100 years old of him. Ishmael, all 13 years old. And every dude in the whole camp gets circumcised. No sterilized surgical equipment. No skilled surgeons. No preparation for something like that. They obey completely and they obey immediately. And so we see this... (sighs) As long as nothing falls, the bigger concern is the falling... They obey immediately and they obey completely. Right away, all of them to a man. I don't know who got that job. Um, I don't think it matters. I think it's the immediate and complete obedience that is what our attention is drawn to, which is significant because we're seeing the faith of Abraham. Faith leads to obedience. Faith leads to changed behaviors. If you're a student... Studying tends to lead to better grades. Uh, 
in work. Working harder tends to lead to a better job. Faith leads to obedience. And so what we're seeing in Abraham is this faith is transforming him from the inside out where the bigness of God, the magnitude of what God can do, is doing, and will do far overshadows the smallness of what God has asked him to do. We're seeing a a hunger from Abraham to obey, a hunger for worship. It's quick and it's immediate. We have this dog that sits at the table just looking longingly for food, and if we turn our back, it will take the food. But the posture of that dog is, I would kill for a crumb from that table. I will do anything to get a crumb from that table. And so that's the posture. When we see the bigness of God and the magnitude of what he's doing and how he's working, when he rolls the curtain back and shows us the details, and we go, oh my gosh, I never would have guessed that through this relationship this would happen or through these circumstances he would change me, change you, change us. Never imagined through this setback, through what seemed impossible, that he would show himself powerful over the impossible, build an unshakable, unflappable faith that would be necessary then to take me through this difficult season or through this trial or give me the ability to come alongside this person and be in comfort and to be an encouragement when he pulls the curtain back and we see the bigness of him and the smallness of what he's asked of us. It creates this hunger, this appetite for worship, this hunger for obedience, looking longingly, how, Lord, can I bring you glory? You have done so much for me. See, in our pride, we think he owes us for some rather pathetic attempt at obedience when, in fact, we owe him everything. Uh, Let's end with a a quote from C.S. Lewis. Some of you have heard it. He says this, probably his most well-known quote, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. He says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us and like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased. So he's not, not saying that we're pursuing pleasure, we're pursuing our own happily ever after too much, he says, we're selling ourselves short and not pursuing God's greater, not believing his greater is better than our good intentions, our good plans. And he says, so we're like a child who's making mud and putting water and mud together in a dark, dingy, dirty alley in the middle of the city, call it Portland, in the middle of the city, when it could be abandoned the ocean, the clean water, and on the little tide pools, maybe the fish market, if it all goes well. Because the child can't imagine what is meant by a vacation at sea. He says, we're far too easily pleased. As you consider chapter 17, uh, as we leave this morning, as we wrap up our service, and as the worship team comes up to lead us in a song of response and our, our, our regular offering, I would say, ask the Lord, where are you not oriented around his good plan? In what ways are you in the driver's seat, not believing that he's in control, not believing that he's got something good planned? You'll know this is you uh, if you're fighting to take hold or cling to whatever you have, 
not believing that you have a Savior who owns everything. If you find yourself striving to bring about your good intentions or your good plans, not believing that you have an advocate in the Savior who goes before you, who is generous, who wants to do good for his sons and daughters. Um, this was something that was relevant for me this week. Uh, we're just in just a moment of clarity. There was this sense that uh, my own striving or my own work, which I deemed as good work ethic and, and working hard, which I deemed as evidence of faith, as evidence of obedience, uh, where the Lord sort of pulls the veil back and says, no, that's not an evidence of faith. That's an evidence of lack of faith because you're trying to do what only I can do. You're thinking that your preparation, that your part supersedes my part. And so there's this sense that we have where we will even deceive ourselves and to say what we're doing is good. And God says, oh, no, 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 pause, wait, breathe. As you look at Genesis 17, where do you need to pause? Where do you need to breathe? Where do you need to let him leave truly in your heart, believing that his greater is better than your own good plans? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we just understand that um, your spirit's job is to take your word to places that we have walled off and are, have our hands over and have guarded and have protected and haven't let anyone in, Lord, and that it's for our good, and so our discomfort is for our good. Um, our confusion is even for our good. Lord, uh, being convicted is, is for our good. Lord, that you don't do that to belittle us, you don't do that to crush us, you do that, Lord, to open our eyes. Uh, to something bigger, to something better. Lord, I thank you for pulling the curtain back for Abraham, uh, this man who for doesn't seem to have deserved it, doesn't seem to have done anything to earn it, but just, Lord, we see your benevolence. Uh, we see your kindness towards him. Lord, I pray that it would cause seeds of faith to go deep in us, to believe that you specialize in the impossible. Lord, and to believe that you are active, doing the same thing in and through our lives. Lord, even when it's hardest to see. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.